highways, it's going to be 220 or so. And in some other countries that have even higher taxes, it's going to be two and a half, even more than two and a half euros a liter. So, you know, some countries in Europe, not very far away from others, are going to have literally double the prices of Hungary. So what, what I was trying to say is that they're weird and they're having some trouble with the, with the European Commission over it because they said we're going to have this regulated, effective, heavily subsidized price of uh, of, uh, of gasoline and uh, petrol and, uh, and diesel. But it's only going to apply if you have Hungarian license. If you have non-Hungarian license plates, you will have to pay, quote-unquote, the market price. So when they instituted this sometime in mid-May, so before that, lots of people from who lived near the border in other countries around Hungary were going to Hungary to fill up because it was actually worth it, right? Because as we just went through, the, the differences, the price differential was so big. Um, and, you know, if you get 25 30% cheaper petrol, that's worth driving you know, 15, 20 miles to, to do, right? Um, so when they instituted this, they immediately got in trouble with the European Commission because, of course, it's like, oh, you know, it's discriminatory. And also what happened is they announced it, I think, a day in advance, maybe two days in advance, maybe about 36 hours in advance. And there were endless queues of cars, I think the Slovak-Hungarian border, of uh, of people just going to Hungary to fill up one last time before the new the new regulation. The really funny part is a lot of Hungarians who have really expensive cars because uh, Hungary has I, I forget what it is. There's some reason for it, like a luxury tax or or something along those lines. Or maybe expensive cars are just taxed more, uh, and they're taxed at registration every year. Right? So a lot of people in Hungary have really expensive cars. Actually, have Slovak license plates. Uh, so if you if you have like a Lamborghini in Budapest, and Budapest is maybe an, an hour south of the Slovak, you're almost certainly going to have Slovak license plates. You're going to like open a company in the other country and register the car with them and have like a work car, Lamborghini or Porsche or whatever. So they now can't benefit from the cheaper gas prices because they have a car registered in the wrong country, which I find particularly hilarious because those are going to be the most, you know, fuel consumptive cars around. Um, and that's also why they're, they're taxed higher. I think there's a, there's like an engine size factor. Um, it, yeah, it, it's causing also all sorts of trouble. And none of the stuff that I said in the past three minutes is important. I just find it amusing and I hope that other people would find it. Uh, but there certainly has to be a lot of effort put into you know, normalizing the conditions under which uh, certain countries in Europe, especially, right, that, that historically relied on Russia for natural gas and oil, can uh, can hopefully get off of that more easily. Um and this needs to be kind of a concerted effort, right? Because many countries don't actually have ports of their own or, say, they're landlocked. Or um, maybe they simply don't have the capacity. And a lot of time, with simple cross-border help, uh, they can, uh, uh, you know, they, they can be helped with that. And that's kind of what uh, is trying to get Germany off of Russian crude oil specifically. Um, so there's this pipeline in Poland that leads from a Polish port down to the middle of Poland, then um, that has quite a lot of capacity. And they're just going to be reusing the pipeline, reassigning the pipeline that previously brought Russian oil from Russia to Belarus to Poland and onto East Germany. They're just going to take the pipe, that pipeline, stop the flow from Russia, and 
get put in oil that they get into Polish ports and get that into Poland down to that big pipeline and, and on to East Germany instead. And, you know, it's, it's stuff like this. It's inventive solutions like this where cooperation can actually build best results for everyone. Um, and this is maybe just one, one example of how it can be done and that just has to be expanded to more fields. Joanne. Well, and that's exactly what has been going on in the last 20 years. Russia used their excessive amounts of energy to curry favor and and basically play diplomatic games with European leaders. And they could um, use that to great effort and also prop these some of these individuals up or, you know, uh, give people greater chances at uh, succeeding and continuing in power in particular countries. If you go Google the the Druzba pipeline and see where it feeds through Europe, um, these countries, interestingly, have um, a lot of dependence and a lack of interest in countering Russia. But I think that lack of interest is is directly attributable to their dependence on Russian energy. Uh, they've allowed themselves to get hoodwinked here, and they're over a barrel now. And at some point or another, they're going to have to rip that Band-Aid off, or they'll always be in this predicament. That's why I think we have to address this issue sooner rather than later, because this problem will always exist if we don't reconfigure the supply chains now. We're just leaving this situation to be addressed by future generations and you know look at the look at how much trouble we're having dealing with this at this moment and know that that problem will be magnified if we allow it to metastasize sorry go ahead joanne no problem um i'll also talk about gas gas at the pump is going up and of course inflation is going up worldwide Although people are blaming it on the president because they believe it's only happening in the United States because that's the way a lot of people in the United States treat their news. Like we're the only nation to have news or that things happen to. Gas is interesting because it's also used to heat homes, especially in the Northeast. And on very cold winters, we find old people freezing in their homes because it was too expensive to heat them. However, there's a law that you fill out a little form and send it to your electric company or gas company. And if you're older than a certain age, no matter what your bill is, they cannot cut your gas off or electric off. So I filled out that form. And I pay the electric company $10 a month. And I'm never going to worry about it for the rest of my life because I refuse to freeze to death or to live in a 100-degree apartment. Um, it can get very, very political. And some people are starting to blame Ukraine for forcing Russia to attack them to cause all this mess. People can be really stupid. I mean, really, really. I would, really I would encourage people, um, if you run into a situation like that, uh, the Energy Information Administration, which is a government agency, it's EIA.gov, has price tracking on oil and gas costs 
averaged over decades. They track how many rigs are drilling in the U.S. onshore and offshore. They track leases. They track commodity prices. They track anything and everything that deals with energy. One of the things they track is the average gas price in the U.S. The gas prices in the U.S. have been steadily increasing since, I believe, June or July of 2020. They bottomed out the same price oil did, and then they steadily started creeping up. The problem is they crept up much higher and faster than the oil prices did, and they never bottomed out nearly as far down as the oil prices did. Um, yet the, so they... the, the, the issue in Russia has put a little bit higher of a premium on the energy crunch that's going on, but the energy crunch was bound to happen because of global market fluctuations post-pandemic. So it, it's icing on a cake. So the prices um, have gone up in gas like everything else in the universe. Yeah. Okay, could, could, could you send me that? Because I won't remember the... I uh, Yeah, I've, I've got a screenshot of that specific chart exactly saved on my phone. I'll be happy to send it to you. And I will tweet that out a few times. Although yeah. I think for some people, you could tweet it out a hundred times directly to their brain and it do not, it does not work. Well, people another like huge, another huge me... problem here domestically is that we lost five refineries on the Gulf Coast during 2020 and they never reopened. There's another one scheduled to shut down the end of next year. Um, the five refineries that already shut down collectively produced a million barrels of refined product per day. And that you can divide that up diesel, gas and jet fuel, however you want. But a million dollars of lost refined product capacity in the U.S. is a huge hit. Um, it put us at a deficit to what we consume on a daily basis. So at the current moment, uh, we need to import refined product. That said, at the same time today, we are exporting more unrefined product than we ever have at any point since the 1970s. So we don't have a deficit of supply here. We have a deficit of refining capacity. And that's something that cannot be alleviated in short order. We spent decades backing ourselves into this corner and we have some... Uh, reckoning to do here in the U.S. as well, not necessarily with where we source our energy product, but with how much capacity we have to turn it into the things we consume on a daily basis. Uh, Ryan, the, the chart that you mentioned, right, that's the chart that shows um, the, the growth in the price of crude oil and intersects it with February 24th, and it's just the same slope before and after? Uh, no, it's the EIA energy it's average energy. Hang on. I'll pull up the name of the chart so people can Google it for themselves and find it. Um, I've got it here. Uh, we did have David. I know he's had his hand up for a minute. I think we skipped him and I wanted to get back to Patrick too. David. Oh, oh, oh no, I've, I've just, uh, I've just put my hand down. So, so, so please move on to Patrick. Very well, Patrick. Unfortunately, guys, I, guys and girls, I'm going to have to bid you good night. It's getting quite a bit late for me. So I will wish everyone a good day or a good evening, wherever you happen to be. And I will talk to you all later. Good night, Patrick. Sleep well. You'll good night, have Patrick. Good. Thank you very much. Um, then I'll put my hand back up, then, if I can. Yep. yep. Give it right ahead. <laughs> Real quickly, if, uh, if you guys can hear me, the name of that specific 
chart I was referring to, if you just Google U.S. all grades, all formulations, retail gas price, it'll pull up the EIA chart and you can see that prices have been steadily going up since the first quarter of 2020. They took a slight dip for maybe a couple of weeks on three separate occasions, but uh, it just like looks like a skyrocketing price. It bottomed out at an average of about $2 US a gallon, and it's steadily climbed all the way up to about four fifty a gallon now. Uh, if you're unfortunate enough to live in California, it's closer to $7 a gallon. Ryan, excuse me, I had to drop out. Where did you put the chart? I did not yet. I will email it to you or I'll, I'll DM it to you right now. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ryan. You're very welcome. It's good to Go David. Ahead, David. I was just going to add a, a couple of little, little bits of detail about um, gas in Europe, et cetera, et cetera, with, uh, sort of specifically around the UK um, and um, how they sort of lead in. Um, so the UK used to have a, a, a very large storage facility. Um, and I think it was about two or three years ago they closed it down and it used to hold something like 70 percent of um, the UK supply. Um, the, the then owners of it had said to the government, um, UK government, by the way, we need some funds. We've got to we've got to keep this facility open. And then they just decided um, that, no, no, we don't want to spend this money. And a lot of the problems we've got around gas etc there are people at the top schroeder is an example isn't he with uh, uh, with the gas coming in people taking who are um in uh, european uh, uh, politicians who are embedded with gazprom and and that area and then we make decisions based around it so the uk specifically had a big problem because we suddenly um when this happened normally we'd have had a lot of supply um, available in the storage facility, but we just removed it. And it's sort of symptomatic of, of what's happening. UK in the Cold War period had 900 tanks, um, and now we've got 230. So a lot of these things are around um, greed in some way, i.e. someone's there's the uh, uh, when you've got an offer too good to be true, but no one's really looking at what the consequences are, isn't it, really? And that's pretty much what's happened with um, Germany, although Germany was being told by pretty much everyone. And even Trump told Germany that they shouldn't be uh, getting so much of their supply from people uh, from from Russia. Uh, uh, and we end up with the consequences we are now. All of this was um, entirely foreseeable. If people guarantee that the analysts who are being paid large amounts of money can sit, always often price becomes the thing doesn't it mic check sorry i had to step away for just one second no your mic was fine i was chasing a dog back in the house <laughs> yeah so just for a bit of more historical context right who were the germans told by they were told by and i think you got to see it like 2005 this is a bad idea and that was for Nord Stream 1, not Nord Stream 2. Um, I mean, Sikorsky went a little bit further and compared it to a second Molotov pact. But I think he's getting kind of vindicated for those words right now, right? That's correct. So Trump told them directly, very, very uh, strongly about it. At the Germans, I think, in the 1980s or the 70s, um, at, uh, at fact, said, stated that they would never take more than something like 10% 
of Russian gas or oil or something like 10 or 15%. It was a really low number, but they've continually upped it, haven't they? Yes, the assumption was made that Russia is a normal country, and um, you know that, that that wasn't the correct assumption. Now it's always good to to state your assumptions clearly. That is just good, you know, say scientific practice. Always state all assumptions that you're making, you know, clearly and loudly. Whenever something doesn't quite work out, go back to the assumptions. Let's see what assumptions you made that led to whatever outcome. Um, cheap, I think you know supply is just too easy to say no to. I mean, once they once they'd had their first taste it's it's like a heroin addiction you it's too easy to say no to cheap energy you can make so many things with it it's it fuels your economy so it once they had gotten a taste it's it makes all the logical economic sense in the world to go ahead and get some more but what they didn't realize was they were being lured into a trap and here we are the trap has been sprung and now they're going to have to get themselves out of the trap. And it's not going to be painless to do that. But pay me now, pay me later. It, you know, we we got to rip the Band-Aid off. And I say we, I'm, when I say we, I mean the West. And by we, I mean they. And by they, I mean Germany and Hungary and, you know, people who are, are most directly impacted by this uh, imbalance that they've found themselves in. And, and just to be clear, and hearkening back to when we had Mark Nelson on last uh, Friday, right, uh, for his four and a half hour combined marathon, five hours, something like that, uh, between two sessions, it was a lot more than than just going for cheap energy, right? It was also being very silly when it came to when it came to other sources of energy. Yeah, straight cognitive dissonance. They they had very well healed and informed people like Ryan. He's a fellow Oki. That guy knows a lot more about global energy than I could probably ever even learn. Uh, but yeah, he made some very clear points because strategically, it it makes absolutely no sense to decommission your nuclear facilities that are in the state they would have been left in harmless uh, and mothball a, a dirty coal plant. And one of the perfect examples that Ryan made was it, it's not even about uh, environmental issues. Germany was banking on the fact that if they ever got into a pinch and needed to do it, they have more purchasing power than developing nations and they can essentially buy the coal out from under the countries that need it the worst. So it's insidious if you get down to the root of it because they're taking coal from countries that are entirely dependent on coal and will thus drive up the coal prices and kill poor people. So Germany had a moral choice to make here of do we keep these nuclear facilities on you know, low power mode or mothball mode and bring them back on if, if we ever have an emergency that we absolutely need more energy that we can't get from Russia. And they made a choice and they picked the coal plants, but knowing first, all of these the things. The fundamental choice in the first place was made to even consider closing all the nuclear power plants that used to represent some like 30% of all German electricity, and now it's you know, low single, single digit percent. Um, and that decision was made for purely ideological reasons without any actual rhyme or reason. And that, that's, let's say, the original sin of all of this, right? Um, Absolutely. And, and it's, it demonstrates how sinister uh, their, uh, their, uh, their ideology is, isn't it? Where it comes to uh, their power. It's very, very sinister. Well, but David, who did it benefit 
to close down uh, nuclear power plants in in Germany, right? It benefited Gazprom because exactly go to, to to natural gas to provide on demand, you know, cheap-ish kind of electricity that didn't have massive quantities of carbon dioxide emissions associated with another pollutants like coal. So they shifted to that, and you know, I I for one would not be at all surprised if uh, you know Gazprom was cheering on the the closure of nuclear power plants before it happened. Right. Oh, absolutely. It's exactly what I thought. So, they're, I was just going to say they're they're very savvy with spreading around political contributions and ensuring people that will advance their narratives in the halls of power get themselves elected. Um, you know, this is this is their long game. They've been playing it for a couple of decades. Oil is their money maker, and gas is their leverage tool. They use gas as a leverage tool to get what they want and extract concessions or you know the political objectives they want in Europe. And they used oil to make money around the world. It's it, they played a long game here and and successfully got a, a large majority of Europe out over a barrel. And what position did Schroeder have in Gazprom? Oh, he was a board member of some sort. There we are, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Sorry, Joanne. Joanne, go ahead. And then Jason, we just have to pile on. I just wanted to know when the Walter report was going to be sending me out a bill for this graduate level course I'm taking. Thank you, gentlemen. Every night, always a new topic or an old topic with new information. We do it for free, but we'll be happy to take donations to the Walter Report. To Maria A. Well done. Excuse me. Well yeah, played. I, I said the Walter Report. I meant Maria A. Well played. Well played. But I don't want to ask anybody to donate beyond their means. So, um, you know, don't don't send any money to Maria Aid if if your cupboard isn't full at home. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Joanne. Jason. Yeah, it just seems like you're kind of like beating around the bush with this, but it's like um, in the United States, uh, well, Saudi Arabia spent, I don't know, billions of dollars of financing the anti-fracking stuff. They made a bunch of movies and stuff. And, you know, it's made it very difficult for anybody to, to frack in, this, in the United States. Uh, you know, I don't know how you feel about fracking or whatever, but it was uh, considered You're speaking a- my love language. I know I know I've spent a lot of time on frack sites. I know a lot about frack sites and I know a lot about how fracking is done. And I know quite a bit about the anti fracking industry and some of the uh, misinformation that was put out from both sides with respect to that. Uh, there was some industry propaganda and some non industry propaganda that perpetuated through the U.S media markets a few years ago so please continue go ahead happy to talk about this yeah and then you go into uh this situation in germany it's like okay nuclear power who's the big uh don't who's really running that is there like a big uh you know uh there is no big nuclear uh uh cabal right and uh as far and and what is the thing that they 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 kept on coal Coal. Who sells them coal? It's the Russians because they they're willing to send people into the back into the mines. So I mean, if if the, it is found that uh, Russia is financing, you know, this anti-nuclear, pro-coal, you know, obviously pro-gas agenda. I mean, is that 
Could that be used in some way? I don't know. I mean, we know that they are financing, that they have been financing that for decades. It's just a question. I mean, how can it be used? You mean like politically used to, to get... I mean, yeah, they're clearly using this as a weapon to, you know, break make them their state stronger and uh, Germany weaker. It's, uh, right. it's almost a, what is it, espionage or something. <laughs> I don't know. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. No, that, that's exactly what's being going on, right? They, they've made... Germany dependent on their own on 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 Russian uh, mostly natural gas supplies, um, less so coal. The, the coal that Germany primarily brown coal that they dig out in open um, what is it open top mines? Ryan, what's it called? Yeah, right. The, uh, the one where you dig a giant hole in the ground, a giant crater in the ground. Yeah, it's it's a pit mine. They you just top a, a mountain that cut the top off of a mountain and dig a hole down into it instead of uh, digging mine shaft yeah there, there's no tunneling going on it's just digging a progressively larger hole in the ground um so that's mostly what they get but it's a it's a very low energy value coal uh, quite a particularly dirty coal actually uh which which is which is particularly funny um but no the the, the anti-nuclear lobby in germany has been quite you know clearly heavily supported by the likes of Gazprom decades and decades and decades uh because simply nuclear doesn't make Germany or didn't make Germany dependent on Russia. Natural gas did make Germany dependent on Russia. It was good for the Russians in the long run, right? Because like, imagine imagine if Europe didn't have any energy dependency on Russia. What else does Russia make? Nothing. Russia just digs stuff out of the ground or, or you know, pumps stuff out of the ground and then sells it. They produce very little. The things they produce are mostly produced for the domestic market and to export to, you know, a couple of other countries, mostly inside. They produce very, very little. When you go to a supermarket, how many Russian things do you see? Forget about America. Of course, in, in the U.S., you're not going to see imported things from, from Russia, right? But anywhere in Europe, you don't see any of the stuff because it's not actually exported. They don't make anything. They get stuff out of the ground in one form or another and then sell it on. Maybe lightly process it and then sell it on. Um, you know, be it ores, be it be it oil, be it gas, whatever. And were it not for this energy dependency, because it takes a while to switch over, there wouldn't be any of this dragging of feet that we have seen from not just the German government, but also a number of others, right? Because there would be no point in doing that. Right, Axel? Well, Absolutely. They jumped on the tailwinds of environmental movements in in the wake of things like Fukushima and pumped money not only into European politics, but they pumped money into these quote-unquote environmental groups or these non-profit groups that think they're fighting some environmental crusade against nuclear energy, not realizing that nuclear energy is infinitely less harmful to the environment if properly managed than carbon products. Um, you know, if, if you want to be pro-environmentalist, you should be pro-nuclear, if anything, not pushing the shutdown of nuclear power plants that emit, you know, warm water and not massive amounts of carbon or methane in in the harvesting and, and refining process. It it was kind of asinine, but they played both sides of the game here. We get back to the whole horseshoe situation of, of politics and they're pitting the the far extremes of, of both political ends of the political spectrum against each other. It, it's their MO. It's how they work. Good morning, Axel. 
yeah, the interesting thing is that, of course, in terms of this fear mongering, which is associated with it, they had extremely fertile ground in Germany for that purpose because they start, they actually continued or resuscitated a long game which had been played out in Germany already from the 1970s onwards, where both anti-Americanism and anti-nuclear movements uh, were captured by the then KGB and Stasi and carried over through the fear porn of the 1980s, where um, those anti-nuclear and anti-American movements were used in order to sponsor vast mass demonstrations against the installation of uh, then Pershing two missiles by the Americans in order to de uh, deter Russian aggression with the SS-20. So it's, a, it's very interesting that essentially the long game of the KGB was then resuscitated by Mr. Putin and his Siloviki so effectively. But there you go. Because the fear of, of nuclear energy culminated in, in Germany specifically easily because of uh, uh, the uh, aspect of uh, and the fear associated with the Chernobyl disaster. So first you have a disaster in Ukraine for which essentially Soviet technology and Soviet procedures are predominantly, predominantly responsible uh, with all the associated damage to the environment and to people, but predominantly in that area. And then you continue through the 1980s with the uh, anti-nuclear movement, which essentially led to a change in government's positions in Germany and shifted the ground from fear to utter. They've just resuscitated this at a later stage when it was convenient and uh, for them doable, which happened with the governments of Gerhard Schröder and Joschka Fischer, the meeting of the Social Democrats and the Greens in Germany. So you have fear and a structural shift in politics. And this is exactly what uh, Benjamin Schmidt, when he was with us in his segment, and what uh, later on Mark Nelson highlighted just as well. The um, fertile ground was easily usable and easily used. Uh, and I believe they're capitalizing on the lack of information that the average person has or the, the, their lack of understanding of how nuclear power is generated. Um, people have this misconception in their head that a, a nuclear power plant is somehow as dangerous as a nuclear weapon. And it's just not the case. And if you have somebody like, I forget his last name, uh, the other Ryan from Oklahoma, um, if you have somebody that understands this stuff as intricately as he does and can sit down and explain this stuff to people who have these unbased fears, you can quickly debunk any of their problems or concerns around the generation of nuclear energy. But you have to take the time to sit down with people and depending on the age demographic that they come from, they either have this muscle memory reaction where they grew up in the Cold War and they fear anything with the word nuclear in it or you know if you get somebody my generation or younger who has either little memory or no memory of the cold war they're hardline in most cases in environmentalist type folks who think that nuclear energy is somehow dirtier than uh fossil fuel well they are a generation don't forget who have been raised in this because their parents assumed that posture and uh, literally handed it down. So uh, fear can be a long, long lasting factor and a limiting factor in decision making and in perception. And uh, what we're seeing is the impact on the German population of 
this nuclear fear instilled into them and drummed into them repeatedly and uh, for a long period of time. It goes as far as Mr. Harbeck, the Minister of the Greens, having recently stipulated in cabinet meetings and also when interviewed that essentially, no, the nuclear question, that's off the table. We've, we've, we've already discussed this and it's, uh, it is not an option for us, period. So it is, it is very interesting to see with what kind of uh, chutzpah and uh, ignorance and Luddite general approach people go on when at the same time we are en route to the next generation of reactors and whilst those reactors which are being phased out in Germany as Mark Nelson that's by the way the Oki the other Oki um, uh, that essentially those reactors which we're shutting down in Germany now are amongst the the best in the world in terms of maintenance status and general approach despite the fact that they're not even that they're not even next generation not even standard of today but they still have a good 30 years in them there you go yeah i i misnamed him there his name was not ryan it's mark nelson so yeah the other the other ryan you meant is, is from iowa i know <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm i'm mistaking the two people um i'm crossing my days here on the walter report in the meandering stream of information and sleeplessness it happens that's all right so, gentlemen, I understand we had the Patrick Fox show earlier on today. Yes, we did, for a number of hours, actually. Now, how did that It went very well. He uh, had a number of interesting points. Uh, he and I don't always see eye to eye, but um, I respect his opinions. Um, he's a little more gung-ho about um, the political aspects of... Did, did he invade Königsberg for the third time today? What's that? Did he invade Königsberg for the third time? Uh, it's it's a running gag. Um, uh, Ryan, uh, you don't know this, but Yehuda, uh, Patrick, and I had uh, two sessions about Königsberg, where at a later stage, Yehuda conceded that uh, Königsberg, meaning Kaliningrad, uh, of today, the Kaliningrad of today, is a strategically important asset and that we can pressure Putin by means of squeezing it a tad while it's not quite taken. Um, But we had one session where we teased out that essentially um, Patrick also agrees to the fact that squeezing is better than taking it. So we all came to that agreement. Yes, we did briefly touch on that, not to Kaliningrad specifically, but um, he did reference back a couple of times to uh, a thread that he had posted on ways we could play the I'm not touching you game with Russia. Uh, I was not here for all of the time that he was in. I didn't log in until approximately 11.30 or midnight my time, and I think he'd already been here for a couple of hours before I showed up. So, All right, then. I mean, this is a big tent, and uh, we have a lot of room for a lot of opinions and arguments, and that's the good thing about the Walter Report, that uh, we can actually debate this here in a sensible, serious manner. And in between, if we can't agree on seriousness, uh, at least we can have a little bit of banter and a joke. I think we are all on the exact same page of the objective we're trying to reach. We only differ in our opinions of how rapidly we should get there and the methods we should take to reach our objectives. And as a friend of ours who I can see in, uh, listening um, would probably concede or if, if not outright say that there are many elements in good Western nations who are chomping at the bits when they're seeing what's going on. And so we can only hope that we 
can do the right thing. But fortunately, as I understand today, uh, once more, Great Britain or the UK, as they now call themselves predominantly, will do yet again and uh, will announce yet again that it is doing the righteous thing, providing yet another billion pound in support and aid. But I think that has been highlighted during the night already, right? I was not aware of that. So you delivered me some news this morning. Well, there were indications yesterday, and I think uh, late during the night before I signed off, we've already brought that forward to our American audience. But there you go. Well, now I'm reminded again of what happens when I log out of the Walter Report for a few hours. So, uh, how's Doman? Doman, uh, have you managed to already reach France? I have been here for a couple of days now. So how How's is it? Wine? It's pretty good. Pretty good. Um, yeah, I, I can I can give you more information in some other forum. It's less, uh, you know, focused on more um, wine prone, and instead more focused on wine and food. I shall be glad. Yeah, you know, I, I don't want to bore everyone uh, with the, with that, but I know I know that you you care. Um, Joanne, your hand was up for a while now. Sorry about that. No problem. Um, I have a question. Domen, is that, that the correct pronunciation of your name? Domen, yes. is that? Okay. Domen, I have a question as to whether fracking occurs in Europe and if it's controversial. And Ryan, I am vehemently anti-fracking, so you and I will have to have a chat about it. And I grew up during the Cold War, but I am for nuclear power. As long as the plants are located not over an earthquake zone. But I'm interested to know, Doman, if fracking occurs in uh, Europe and if there have been any problems with fracking, uh, turning the water table bad or fracking causing earthquakes and problems with nuclear power. Thank you. Thanks, Joanne. Um, honestly, Axel, I think you're better suited to answer this question. I know there's a little bit of it, but very, very little. They definitely don't have any in France, which ironically is where Schlumberger is based. And Schlumberger is one of the world's leading technology experts in horizontal drilling and advanced well completions like fracking. So they'll uh, export fracking technology around the world. But for some reason, the French government doesn't think fracking is safe enough in France, which I personally think is a little silly, but go ahead, Axel. Yeah, it's, it's ludicrous. So, yes, there is a large, there's a vast amount of um, fracking capacity in Europe, which is untapped because of the same kind of movement uh, underhand as it is by, um, in this case, predominantly Russian sources of undermining uh, Europe's as well as America's energy independence by highlighting the disadvantages and the terrible, terrible toxic problems of uh, various, uh, say, various methods of fracking. Uh, first and foremost, people need to, need to understand what actually fracking is. Very few people do. Uh, most people read a few things uh, but have never worked in that field. Uh, we can go through a whole hour of fracking with Ryan, I'm sure. Maybe that's worthwhile doing at some point in time. But the key aspects are that if you understand the technology and how well completion works and how horizontal drilling works, then you will very quickly understand that earthquakes uh, are not the consequence of it. But that if you are, were to be fracking in an earthquake zone, you would probably enhance the effects of earthquakes on sediment structures. 
Um, so you have to make sure that you're not in so-called earthquake zones. Earthquake zones, not as in, my goodness, we are in the San Andreas, uh, but even in lighter forms. And then you have to discuss a debate as to whether the fracking in that zone, if it's a light earthquake zone, actually has any impact. Often, oh, sorry, most often it does not. That has to do with geology. And Schlumberger is actually pretty good at that. And uh, one of my oldest friends here in Tallinn is the former head of development of Schlumberger, having acted and worked in Africa as well as in North America and South America for about two and a half decades, at a point in time when fracking was not nearly as advanced as it is today. But Ryan, why don't we address the technology question first before we go into the conundrum of what is a leftist and environmentalist European policy undermined by uh, Russian agencies? If if I may, um, I'd like... Sorry, darling. Sorry, darling. It's very nice that you asked the question. Can we address the question now and talk about fracking? Because I think uh, we have an expert here who can talk about it in a little bit more detail because he worked in the industry and could be... Yes, give but you I have another... Opinion. I Sorry, have another we, we question. Can, we can do the, yes, we can do the second question after. One question no, after it, another, it will, it will fit no. in with this, Sorry. Axel. It will Sorry. fit in with this. And the question is the water table. If the you could work table, the water I mean, table. The I can, table I can cover water Ryan tables cover, and fracking. Ryan will cover that. That was Absolutely. the original okay. question. Thank you. Hold it. All right. I don't know whether it's Ryan so or hold, Axel. Hold your, no, Ryan will do this. Hold your fire, please. Nope. I've, I've worked in the oil and gas industry for... Uh, approximately excuse me i formerly worked in the oil and gas industry for approximately a decade um, that said i've had generations of my family involved in petroleum extraction um, they weren't directly involved in fracking they were in other facets of the business uh, the technology has existed since the 1950s if i'm not mistaken it was not um, a boogeyman or taboo subject up until the early or uh, late aughts of the 2000s. Um, there was one specific piece of propaganda or documentary news. I don't know what you'd call it. Shockumentary probably is a better term. Uh, it became wildly popular here in the U.S. It was called Gasland. I suspect you have watched it. A bunch of the stuff that you see on there is purely... Uh, dramatic exaggerations of things that naturally occur without fracking technology in the first place. Um, I don't I don't remember that. Okay. Um, if, if you've ever seen a show or a video of somebody showing you their their water faucet lighting on fire in their home because of fracking, that was not because of fracking. Um, there have been isolated and a number of highly studied failed uh, well completion jobs, but the fracking was never the issue. It was a, an improperly done casing job. So when they drill a well, typically there are multi layers of casing. Um, you drill a surface hole down to approximately 1500 feet in depth, which gets you at least three times deeper than the water table should be at least one or two times deeper. I think normally uh, state regulations dictate this, but in, in the U.S. at least, they want you double the depth of the water table before you isolate your well the first time. So you'll put in um, like a 14-inch piece of pipe and you back that up with concrete. Then you drill down another 
8,000 feet, you set another layer of pipe and another layer of concrete. Then you drill down and kick out and drill your horizontal well, and you set yet another layer of pipe and yet another layer of concrete. Uh, so at least in Oklahoma, you would have three layers of steel protection and some concrete between any potential freshwater table that anyone would consume water out of. Um, where they've had well failures in the past is when they go in to complete these wells. Uh, how they do that is that last string of casing that goes down and to the, the deep parts of the well and then kicks out horizontal, horizontally into a vein of shale rock, which is what they extract the gas out of. They send down um, charges to blow holes in the casing. Um, there were problems in the past where people were tractoring in these explosive charges, thought they were at a certain depth in the well, and in reality, their explosive charges were hung up in the vertical section of the well, and they blew a hole in the exact wrong spot of the well. They have meticulous uh, checks and balances in place now where they go in and do electromagnetic logging and check and make sure exactly where they've blown holes in the casing and make sure that the integrity of the well bore is intact before they ever start pumping anything downhole. Uh, they don't use massive amounts of chemicals in the fracking process. They use typically a little bit of hydrochloric acid and some guar gum and some sand and a whole lot of pressure and a whole lot of water. Um, okay, so if they do the procedure correctly, everything is fine. If they fuck it up, it's going to be fucked up. Correct. Correct. The, uh, they, uh, they have to they have to test so many times between when they actually drill the well bore and when they start putting any pressure on anything. They do well integrity tests where they'll put a bunch of pressure on the well bore and then sit there for a period of time and wait and see if any pressure bleeds off. And if pressure bleeds off, that indicates that you have a compromised well bore. I've I've been out on drilling locations where they were pulling stuff out of the hole at the wrong time and they yanked a hole or separated parted the casing below the surface of the ground while they were in a in one of the initial drilling phases and rather than them take a risk on any of that they pumped a bunch of concrete in the hole plugged the well scooted the rig over at a cost of multiple millions of dollars and started fresh um, understood there have Is this I'm, I'm not saying it's never happened. Yes, there have been industrial accidents that caused problems. Is it a wholesale risk? No, it's something that's been going on for decades all across America. Um, I drink tap water here in Oklahoma, and we've been fracking for probably 40 years plus. Are these regulations nationwide? Regulation is kind of a patchwork process. It's, it's done state by state. Um, some regulations are dictated by the federal government, but the federal government doesn't really have a whole lot of sway if you're unless you're drilling on federal lands. Um, there have been some claims back and forth among political parties about how you know drilling is curtailed here in the U.S. because um, the current political administration won't issue additional permits. And I frequently find myself reminding people that the permits that the United, that the president and the, um, I guess it wouldn't be the president, it would be the Department of the Interior issue for drilling are only issued for federal lands, which would be offshore or federally administered stuff like the Bureau of Indian Affairs or the Department of Interior. 
the vast majority of drilling that gets done in the U.S. does not necessarily, at least onshore drilling, doesn't happen on federal lands because oil and gas companies have to uh, hold themselves to a higher standard on safety regulations. And I don't mean environmental safety regulations. I mean, people like me have to wear additional equipment if we drill a well on federal land versus drilling it on state land. So oil and gas companies, at least the ones I've worked for in the past, would much prefer to drill on private lands and federal lands in the first place because it's a little bit cheaper and it's less of a pain in the ass. And they don't have to make burly guys that usually sling pipe on a drilling rig shave off their beard so they can fit a respirator over their face. Oh, understood. Now, what about those 9,000 permits we keep hearing about? Excuse me, I drank from the wrong can. The 9,000 permits that were issued but are not used. Those are probably federal permits. Um, Drilling activity in the U.S. is up year over year, at least as of last March. Uh, Approximately 70% in the U.S., and it was up about 190% here in my state, Oklahoma. I think the, the actual number was 188%. That doesn't mean um, production is up 188%, but it means the drilling rigs that punch holes in the ground that increase production were up 188% over the rig count a year before that time, which have been right around the inauguration in 2021. Um, So nobody's nobody's hardcore anti-energy here. We have made some... Uh, decisions at the executive level or at the national level to try and transition the country to a more balanced approach of using renewable stuff and um, alternative energy and getting people onto electric vehicles and all those things. But um, I think in hindsight, we, we may have been a little poorly timed with that. Um, We still need to do those things in the long run, but in the short term, we have uh, a war going on with Russia and people committing genocide. In the the short term, there are massive fires all over Snake Island. In the very short (laughs) term. There we go. Are you you satisfied with the tracking regulations? As uh, yes. they're being improved over John, the years. John, we're gonna go to we're gonna go to the breaking news of Snake Island now and we'll come back to Freck a little bit later. Do you stay with us, please? I will, but I don't like you interrupting me, Al. So it's I'm, always Joanne, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm it's to it's talk always you. No, 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 no. It is always me. It's always you. Ma- yes, because it's I'm the main host and I have to guide through the conversation. We do have breaking news and therefore, like every other good news channel. We go to the breaking news, and that's I understand. Why I but your voice sounds. I am the one who enforces order here. Yes, your voice so please sounds about me. Thank very you. condescending, and you're not a co-host, am, and that's confusing. I am. Don't I call am me sweetheart. Uh, you because you just said I'm condescending. So please listen carefully. I'm very kind and very friendly, but we have breaking news. I don't find I, that. I am the main host. I, I, I want to hear the breaking Joanne, news. Joanne, I'm, I'm happy to talk with you 
at length about fracking and the technology and whether or not they're regulating it enough here in the U.S. But when there's stuff going on about Ukraine, uh, we we're here about Ukraine. That's, that's I understand this breaking this. news. And if it was Doman or you that interrupted me, they it's were the not same here. for me, Joanne. It is the same for me. I am the main host here. I'm running this at the moment, so please be kind. Allow us. Well, how am I to know that? Oh my because you know me, and I'm the one who holds the host account. I'm just speaking for my own so that you can identify me. So thank you very much. Let's move to the main news, please, and not have a further discussion. Thank you. So according to the Operational Command South, that is the um, Ukrainian Operational Command that covers uh, areas of Odessa as well as Snake Island, um, there have been extensive artillery strikes and missile strikes on Snake Island overnight. According to some sources, including Russian sources, Russians have wholesale evacuated for Snake Island on either two or three raptors. Raptors are the sort of ribbed um, light vessels. I, I don't know I don't know the correct terminology is, um, but you know, the sort of stuff that you would see in films with special forces landing on them. Um, multiple Russian sources likewise say that Snake Island has been liberated by Ukrainian forces. Well, they, they don't use those, uh, they don't use those words, right? Um, there are, uh, uh, there are pictures of smoke billowing, and I mean absolutely billowing, um, off of Snake Island this morning. I, I think it's pretty clear that it's identifiable from the picture that they, that 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 is indeed Snake Island um, in the picture because of the the way the topography looks like. I mean, the, the amount of smoke is is just absolutely insane. Um, so yes, that that's what we know thus far. Uh, we don't know all the details yet, obviously. Um, but there soon, there soon will be. Already last night, um, there were reports from Odessa of a lot of air activity in the sense of manned aircraft of the Ukrainian Air Force, uh, and that is probably how at least part of the strikes took place. Um, there were also apparently several helicopters that Russians have sent onto, uh, onto Snake Island last night, possibly to facilitate with evacuation. Um, however, they were, at least one of them was also destroyed there. Um, there were additional explosions that happened, apparently, on Snake Island, uh, saying that, uh, were, were, that were actually probably instigated by the Russians to destroy whatever equipment they couldn't evacuate and whatever documentation they couldn't get rid of. So the best understanding is uh, that Russians have probably retreated from Snake Island in a less than organized fashion. Doman, you know, Doman, you know that the helicopter sank, right? Yes, yes, yes. As I said, one at least one helicopter got destroyed. Sank, uh, like sank in the water. Yeah, it got um, it, it got hit over the water and then fell in and sank. But I mean that that's less that's less confirmed than the whole island being on fire. Right, so. I hope they brought their floaty. Pretty cold in the Black Sea, is it not? And I, I don't know what the water to. No, that that's fine. The, the the one thing you don't have to worry about, you know, freezing conditions because it's uh, the end of June, and the Black Sea is kind of a pond and it heats up relatively well. I mean, there's like beach resorts all over the Black Sea. Fair enough. So they they had to swim to the island if they survived, and then sit there while everything burned. That's a nice. Uh, mental thought i'll sleep well on that yeah, yeah. absolutely 
Absolutely. I, I love the turnaround karma here. Uh, Snake Island was kind of seen as, you know, this uh, rallying cry at the first of the war, and now it's a rallying cry of a whole nother sort. Yeah, indeed, Ryan. 